to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today, philosopher Dylan Ahn and I are starting our third dialogue of the Know Thyself series, which will explore the practice of meditation. This series will guide the listener through the fundamentals of meditation and the process of gaining self-knowledge. In this episode, we explore the highest form of bodhicitta, the guiding intention, and I will share also some of my personal experiences from meditation with this concept. And remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, leave comments, share our content. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, The Pain is Dialectic, and subscribe. You can also support us directly through Spotify. If you'd like to check out our Instagram page, it's The Pain is Dialectic. My Instagram page is Josh Green Artist. And if you'd like to stay with me, you can go to greenatelier.art. And if you'd like to see my website, it's joshgreenart.com. Hey, Dylan. Good to see you again. Hey, how are you? Doing good. I thought the last episode went well. I think we should stay on the topic of bodhicitta and mm-hmm. show the extreme of it, absolute bodhicitta. Right. We also brought up the Heart Sutra, which I think talks about absolute bodhicitta. Mm. Um, but I thought I would share some direct experiences of it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make clear that I don't think that I've attained this at any <laughs> regard at all. But in meditation, you can experience many things that you'd be considered like high or advanced. Just Mm -hmm. briefly, you know, um, I'm not able to sustain that state or to get into it very often. These are all very brief experiences that kind of show me that these kind of ambiguous, you know, mystical type of sutras that I've been reading for years have some type of practical background Mm -hmm. to them some experiential background it's not just you know a a mystery um Mm. so this is a very hard concept um so i just want to share my brief experiences uh with absolute bodhicitta or bodhicitta i thought it'd be fun to bring up that my my dharma name is shingyo from the heart sutra if you remember the last ending the gyate gyate haraso gyate there's the name right there. So that sutra, I've been reading it for nine years now, I think, since my practice is at the Zen temple. And in my opinion, it describes absolute bodhicitta. But I'm not a Buddhist scholar like you, so I'll let you comment on that. Um, that sutra resonated with me. But at first, it was very abstract and mystical. And like I said, I didn't see anything practical in it until I had these experiences of what's in there called ku, which is a, a very specific type of emptiness. Mm. I also think it is, is like the true nature of the mind or like the ground awareness of the mind. Mm. And now with these brief experiences, I could see how like a full realization of that would be beneficial. And I just want to put a disclaimer uh, that I'm I'm very adventurous with my meditations. I don't think people should 
try to attempt any of these kind of risky meditations unless they have a lot of experience and and maybe they consult with a practitioner or something like that if they see if it's right for them. Mm-hmm. But I, I do very adventurous meditations. And, of course, you and me will, will share these later on in more depth, talk about how to do them in a sound, safe, and practical way. This is just to show you the concept that we're talking about today and maybe a glimpse of, of like some of the, the potentials that most people don't think about with meditation. So I want to share now three experiences I've had. The first one, I was doing what's known as a calcination meditation from the Western esoteric tradition of spiritual alchemy. I was lying on the floor blindfolded with earplugs in. I dropped into what felt like a theta state after some time, which is where hypnagogia and uh, maybe like dreams begin to happen. It's, it's kind of like your dreaming state. And in this meditation, you purposely recall your life's most embarrassing moments, painful moments, and moments when, I, when my actions and words hurt someone else. And this is done over a long period of time to overwhelm the ego, to crush the ego. So I continued that for about 30 to 40 minutes. And then I had this kind of visualization of my ego, which is really helpful. I saw this really complex webs of, of interconnecting concepts. It was, it was huge, and it contained all of my life's history, all of my emotions and thoughts. Everything I had attributed to myself was hanging there like a kind of silk cocoon. And along with that visualization, I felt like I had achieved a true understanding of what my ego is, what the I is, what Josh is, and I realized that I was not that. Right? That this is a net of complex experiences that kind of simulate this this ego. The second experience, I was once again laying on the ground, blindfolded, but this time I had headphones on, and I was using sound of specific frequencies to stabilize my brainwave state at 4 hertz, which is the threshold right above delta, which is deep sleep or unconsciousness, and low theta, which is like REM sleep. So to be clear, I was not asleep during this. I was very aware, but my brain and and body were, especially my body, was in a sleep state. And I was doing what's known as a fermentation meditation from the Western esoteric tradition, where the point is to kill all mental processes that arise. And during that, and this, usually these things take probably an hour to do so it takes a long time to get in there and stabilize at that four hertz state but i had a sensation it actually it wasn't a sensation it was a non-sensation like everything flicked off like a light switch like there was no experience of body or anything for a moment and then i came back and so i flickered on and off several times it was a little frightening. I had never really felt anything like that. 
I think I had achieved kind of complete uh, dissociation in that meditation. The third experience that where I really felt like I got a glimpse of absolute bodhicitta was doing Tibetan dream yoga in a meditation called a dild or a dream induced lucid dream. In order to do that, I had been practicing mindfulness throughout my day for about four months. I was doing reality checks throughout the day. I was recording every dream I had in the morning and just really raising my awareness during sleep so that I could directly enter a lucid dream from a dream. The knowledge from the previous two experiences prepared me for the lucid dream I was about to have. So I was in a dream. I was walking through this beautiful field with a group of people. We were all moving in the same direction, kind of like automatons. And suddenly I became aware that I was in a dream. I turned and looked at the face of the man next to me and I said to him, this is a dream, isn't it? And he kind of stood there looking at me and I, I looked really intensely at his face to try to find anything that was wrong. I even saw pores in his skin. I'm like, well, he looks really real. I looked at my hands and there was something slightly off about the proportion of my hands. And then I knew for sure I was in a dream. I started becoming aware taking control of the dream and I started remembering my dream yoga and I looked across at this field full of people and I commanded that through attention that the dream space collapse and so the environment disappeared but the people did not and they were still walking and moving around on the ground like it was there and then I had this big realization that what my mind really is, is a kind of simulator. And that my whole experience of everything is just a mental simulation. And I felt like that, that void, that space was really what I am. Right? And that, that dream took so much effort that as soon as I had that experience, I dropped back into a dream. It kind of collapsed. But I remembered that vividly when I woke up. And I think now I, I call that kind of my second awareness. And I try to relate to that. And there are moments of the day where I feel, it's hard to explain if you don't do dream yoga, I feel very lucid. And I start, it's, it's kind of changed the way I see the world. Like suddenly things become more vivid instead of being fearful of the unknown. It's kind of mysterious and beautiful. And there isn't this big attachment to everything that's happening. I can kind of drop into that second awareness and have distance. So that's how I can see the practical use of absolute bodhicitta and how it could be beneficial. I can't imagine attaining that as like your baseline reality all the time. That sounds absolutely wild, but yeah, I'd love to know, you know, the, the actual theory or, or what you think, you know, as a Buddhist scholar, if I got anything wrong or that doesn't line up or I don't know, just you know, whatever you do, you do the Dylan thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, 
So the first thing worth pointing out is that you can't really get any of this wrong, so to speak, yeah. right? Because it's a it's a purely experiential process, right? So whatever you experience, to you, right, it has to be right in the sense where you are genuinely having that experience. And the only place you can go wrong is that if you didn't have that experience <laughs> and then you thought you did. So as long as you genuinely had an experience, that experience is totally valid. It's an experience that you had. To bring it back to the notion of bodhicitta in the absolute sense, as you mentioned, it is something to do with this idea of, uh, I think you mentioned, I think the Japanese call it ku or the Chinese call it kong or in English is often uh, translated as emptiness or voidness and it's, or, or in the, uh, you know, or it's called sunyata. Uh, so there's this notion of realizing emptiness and realizing emptiness and attaining emptiness and attaining bodhicitta in an absolute sense is kind of like a misnomer or ironic because the conventional bodhicitta is something it gives you and it paints a picture of where enlightenment is something you may attain. So you can attain the wise heart, you can attain the enlightened heart, you can attain uh, disillusionment, you can attain compassion and things like that. It feels like something you can get. And that's conventional and the book describes these things as if you can attain them to help people visualize the practical aspect of how to attain these things, right? Because we think in terms of attaining, we think in terms of assuming that there are things, therefore when the Buddha speaks our language and he's talking to us, he speaks as if that there is something to attain, that there is a practical step-by-step -step to do, to get more stuff. But of course, the Buddha is well aware, like when, you know, he was about to achieve nirvana, uh, by, by that I mean he's about to pass away, he noted to his last disciple that real practice is a little bit like removal, right? We are a moon, a very bright, round moon, but only that there are things in the way that is obscuring the light. And practice is not about getting more light for the moon. That's impossible. You already have full light in that you already have your full sense of awareness. It's just that there are a lot of obstacles in the way. And the practice is actually the removal of obstacles. What feels like something that is active, feels like something that is gaining, is actually a process of gradual removing. And it's actually the removing that feels like we're getting somewhere, but in, in the absolute sense, we're just getting back to where we were, right? In the first place, the bright moon. And so in that sense, like the Taoists agree that they think that learning is a process of gaining, and they think that practicing the Tao is a process of losing. And so this is, of course, uh, reflected again when a Brahmin asked the Buddha, like, I don't see what the hell you guys are doing here, right? You guys haven't got any richer, haven't got any more powerful. Like, I don't see what the, what the point is of this practice. You are not gods. You haven't ascended to heaven. You haven't gained anything. And the Buddha says, you are absolutely correct. I have not gained anything from my practice, but I have lost desire. I have lost hatred. I have lost delusion. I have lost my ego. I've lost suffering. I've lost, you know, my attachment. And so it's a process of losing things. And so it feels like progression, but actually in absolute terms, it is the pro process of loss. And so when it comes to emptiness, it becomes far more uh, contextualized why we call it emptiness or the void. 
because we're slowly removing the aspects that have obscured our awareness, our biases, right? Our stimulants that take away from our attention, right? Our attachments, our, you know, uh, our greed, for instance, our hatreds, right? We're slowly losing those things and we're getting to a state of uh, pure awareness again, where our attention and our awareness isn't being dictated and being controlled by other things. So there's that notion of returning to a state of emptiness. But what does this emptiness actually mean? So it's the realization, one, that there was nothing to attain in the first place, and that's the first step. And two, that the obstacles never existed independently of your mind either, right? As you mentioned, that our experiences are like an, a simulation of the mind. And this entire process is a psychological and we're not removing physical objects and obstacles. We're realizing that those obstacles were never there in the first place. So it's like waking up from a dream. It's not that we've somehow gotten rid of the dream. It's that realization that we're in a dream and that dream has never existed in objective reality or in an absolute sense ever. That's not to say the dream doesn't exist, right? The dream exists as part of our experiences. So this is where the Buddhist middle view comes from, where it's not claiming that something exists or something doesn't. It's saying that it exists as far as your experience dictates as it's so. And once you realize that experience is what dictates your reality, things stop existing as you thought they were when you come to realize that there was nothing to attain, nothing to get rid of in the first place. And so it's a little bit like, you know, uh, falling in love with a with an idea, with like a crush on someone. It's not that you, you know, you've lost the desire over time. It's that you realize your ideal of what you thought the person was like never existed, right? So that is what move gets you moving on from a crush or from a desire. It's not that the desire just got you got rid of the desire. It's the realizing that your object of desire didn't exist the way you thought it did. So often I think a really good a film portrayal of this idea is found in the Matrix as well. There's this moment where Neo walks into the Oracle's sort of house right, and he sees this, little, this kid, this monk, sort of bending spoons. And of course he's curious and he asks like, you know, how the hell are you bending these spoons? And the monk goes like, you know, don't try and bend the spoon, that's impossible. Right? Only try to realize the truth. There is no spoon then you'll realize it's not the spoon that bends, it's you, right? And so the absolute body is about realizing, don't try to attain enlightenment, don't try to do any of this stuff, that is impossible. Only try and realize the truth, there is no enlightenment. There is no other state than what you are now already, you've just only failed to realize it. So that when you come to attain enlightenment, you realize that it's not that there was anything to attain in the first place, it's just realizing that you are already it, this is it, right? You are already there. You are perfectly enough in the first place. And so in the Arahant's context, it is specifically applied to the self. So they do a practice where they slowly come to realize that what they thought, their conception of what the self was, is just a narrative, is a story, right? So the Buddha describes that we're consistent of, you know, we think of ourselves in five sorts of ways. In the formal way, we think of ourselves in the body, in the bodily fashion. So when we look in the mirror, we say, I'm looking at myself, right? We even talk about a colloquial or when you wave, right? You're waving to someone else, right? I am waving, right? So we think of the form in a sense is ourselves, but the Buddha asks us to contemplate. If this was really yourself, 
then it should be consistent, right? Because if, you, if the self, if the notion of the self is denoting one specific identity, then it's not something that changes often or something that doesn't change at all. But the body changes all the time, right? And so you realize that the thing that you are labeling, the label of the self, is not really attached to anything specific or anything stable at all, right? And if that is too philosophical, the Buddha gives a practical approach, right? If you think that the body is truly you, make it do something. Make, you know, do you have full control over your body? When you're sick, can you make yourself not sick? Right? Can you wish away cancer? Can you wish away old age, right? Can you, can you make yourselves 12 again? You can't. So if you don't have full control over something, in what sense do you think that that is you? And so he applies this similar technique to other aspects of the five aggregates. So in terms of our, pers our thoughts, right? We might think, well, surely my thoughts, well, I don't think that my thoughts are consistent because I think about different things all the time or I have different perceptions all the time, but our perceptions are not within our control, right? So when we go out, we perceive things dependent on what there is to perceive. And sometimes we have thoughts and perceptions that are completely out of our control in the sense that a thought just occurs. We have an intrusive perception, a intrusive thought, right? You walk, you know, down the street and you think, I really want to, you know, have that ice cream right now. I don't know where that thought came from, for instance. And so you don't have full control. And then there is our feelings, right? Our, you know, sensations. There are pleasant, unpleasant and neutral sensations. We might attach, you know, I am feeling this way, right? I am hot, I am cold, I feel great, I feel poor, right? And so there's that notion of we attach feelings very, very personally to ourselves, but in what sense, right? So it's more accurate to say that there is feeling than to say that I am feeling this, because what is the I referent, referencing? And of course, we are not in control of our feelings either. There's no sense in which your feelings are really yours. It's just that you experience them. And then there's mental volitions, right? The movements of the mind. So our conscious and unconscious movements of the mind. They're very, very out of control, out of our control all the time, right? We don't get to decide what thoughts and what little, it's not even as fully formed as thoughts, but maybe just ripples in our mind. We just feel unsettled. We feel unat peace, right? And that's very, very out of our control. You know, do meditation for five minutes and you realize how loud your head actually is. Right? All of those mental movements happening and you have no control over any of them. They're not stable in any way. And then the last one is consciousness, right? We don't have any control about what our eyes conceptualize and see, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, what we hear. You know, all of those things operate in a way that is fully out of our control, right? We might think, well, I can choose to look a certain direction, but you think, well, what made you look in that direction in the first place? try and trace it back, you'll find that there is no source at which that is coming from. And so the Buddhist does this analysis as well, these five things are enveloping and, and a narrative, but not anything substantial, that we are not a substantial self, that there is no soul that it is enveloping, right? We are a bundle of cause of conditions and, and processes and causes. We're like a river that we've assigned a name to. We call it the Amazon River. We call it the River Nile, right? But the water is always moving. It's always flowing. And in no sense that the river is ever the same river. And so this is not, you know, a unique concept. Uh, there was a Greek philosopher that famously said, no man ever steps into the same river twice. 
because it's neither the same river nor the same man. That's the idea. There is no oneself that that notion denotes. We are continuous processes like rivers. And so this is not that controversial, not that out there of an idea. Anybody who has any notion of, of, of any scientific background knowledge understands this. It's just that conventionally, we don't operate psychologically in that fashion. We like narratives. We want things to make sense. We want things to be consistent. We want things to surround a very, very uh, defined and concrete notion of an identity. But of course, in reality, we are not concrete. We're very, very fluid, right? As people, you know, and identity politics has gone into that. But there's a very weird sense of irony and contradiction. On one hand, identity and gender politics want to say that we're fluid. On the other hand, they're very, very quick to want to certify what identity and what, what type of fluidity they are. So there's a little, you know, we see all of this tension in our minds and our psychology all the time. On one hand, we recognize how uncertain and how, how you know, un impermanent we are. And on the other hand, we're desperately trying to grasp up to something to hold on to for a sense of security and comfort, right? But the Buddha says, why don't you just accept you know, why don't you try and observe and try to come to terms with the fact that you are not a certain stable, consistent being? Maybe you can have, you can look, you can come to have more fun, right, in life. Maybe you can come to accept life more than it is if you go about this way. And so, recognizing that we are conditionally arising processes is what is meant by sunyata, by emptiness. That ultimately there is no core in these processes. There is no the River Nile. <laughs> there is just a flowing sense of processes, right? And we have as ascribed to that sense of flowing uh, processes as a thing. In the Mahayana tradition, right, that's not to say that we are nothing, right? So a lot of people think, oh, okay, if there's no self, if there's non-self, then we are nothing. Or if you apply this notion of emptiness to the world and phenomena, you think there is nothing. And so obviously that's not true, because if there was nothing, and if we were nothing, what is all of this? We have experiences, these experiences must trace back to somewhere. So there is a clarification. It's not saying that we are nothing, right? The Buddha has never confirmed or denied whether there is or isn't a self. He's just saying that whatever we are is not what you think it is. And what we fundamentally are is one, a baseline sense of conscious awareness, right? Whatever the thing is, that allows us to pay attention to pay attention to. But so people say, well, isn't that just a self? Isn't that an I? Isn't that a soul? It's like the Buddha says, well, no, because that one, that particular thing is not an independent individual notion. That thing, that awareness is not identifiable to one single thing. It's not an I because it's not independent from anything else. It is part of everything in the universe that has that ability to pay attention to pay you know, to pay attention to things, right? That ability is not unique to one single individual. It's not an I, right? If there is something there, but it is shared, right? We do not come into the universe as an independent thing. We come out of the universe as a thing that is capable of paying attention, right? These processes, if scientists are right about the consciousness being, being an emergent property of the mind, this is an emergent property, something that's come out of the universe, right? As part of the universal game, not an independent that's just exclusive to one inhabitant. So that, in that sense, the Buddha says that, that this is not a self, right? There is an awareness, 
There is a universal awareness. There is the possibility, the capacity of awareness in the universe, but that is not exclusive to you, right? And so that's the notion of emptiness in that sense as well. That is not denoting a singular thing, so to speak. Um, in terms of meditation, then, how do the Arahants come to realize this? It's very, very gradual. So we spoke about how Buddhism is sort of like psychological deprogramming. So what about our biases and what about these conceptions that we have? And how do we get rid of them? As a business, well, the first step is to have some form of discipline, and that involves playing around with your ability to pay attention. Before we get into like the very deep sense of meditation, the first step is always, can you pay attention to what you pay attention to? And then we give fancy names to this, we call it awareness, we call it mindfulness, but really it's just, are you looking, right? Are you paying attention, right? Are you noticing what your eyes see, what your ears hear, what your mouth you know, what your tongue tastes, what your nose smells, what your body touches, right? Are you noting these things? Are you noticing? And then once there's the discipline aspect, then you can move on to, you know, meditation, right? And so a lot of people associate this with just sitting there, but of course it's a very complex psychological process. The first one, the Buddha says, the first thing that we should move towards in the first step of meditation, the first jhana, the first concentration, is to let go of the notion of looking for something. So the first obstacle to meditation is trying to look for something, that there is a seeking, there's a sense of activity, there's an active sense of looking for something. So a lot of people do meditation actively seeking peace and happiness. That is the precisely the obstacle towards seeking peace and happiness. The peace and happiness is about acceptance that you are enough, that you are there and that is good enough. Right? But if you're trying to look for happiness elsewhere, if you're trying anything actively, right, then that is your obstacle, you are seeking. Right? And so Buddhism is about awareness, about paying attention, not about you know, actively trying to pursue something. Because if you actively try to pursue something, you contradict the notion of emptiness. You think that there is something to pursue, right? and that's the internal inconsistency, that is the failure of that logic. You can't at once believe in emptiness and believe that there's something to pursue, right? And so that's where the delusion happens. So the first step is giving up the seeking mind, right? The looking for something, anything that's active thinking, active thought, active seeking, active desire. So once that stage has been reached, there is sort of, uh, you know, there's this notion of, you know, what is called rapture or bodily joy or pleasure, right? There's this notion of rest, right? That's like the first thing that, you know, people who start meditating get, right? That's their most visceral emotional rest. Like for the first time, my mind is allowed to just rest, right? I'm no longer looking for something. I'm just allowed to be, right? And so the, the enjoyment aspect of this, of this meditation is the, you know, allowing yourself to relax, to take a break, to enjoy just being, right? So people talk about like why meditation so, uh, feels so good is that in the first instance, your body, your brain, your mind is allowed to just take a break, right? You're no longer seeking, actively trying to do something. So that's the first jhana, the first step. The second step is a moving into this idea of awareness, right? Of trying to concentrate and reach a sense of stillness. So in the beginning, we abandon seeking but our minds might still be quite turbulent. There's a lot of things going on. So in the second step, it's trying to bring that sort of down. It's to develop stillness through concentration. So what that means is that you hear a lot of Buddhists uh, doing, um, for instance, 
mindfulness of something in particular. So you have lots and lots of lots of thoughts. You bring it down to a concentrated point, right? You have 10,000 different things going on in your head, lots of stimulations. You bring it to a single point, right? And from that single point, right, you can settle that single point and reach stillness, right? It's, people describe it as almost like if you feel like there's a, you know, you drop, there's a droplet in a puddle, there's ripples, right? There's a lot of things happening. So in the, you try and still it, right? Still the waters, right? And in this first stage, it's more of an act, it feels more active in the sense that you're, it feels like you're pushing it down with concentration. So you have a lot of thoughts going in here, you go like, focus on the breath, focus on the breath, focus on the breath, right? You're pushing it down because wisdom hasn't come in here to analyze your trauma, analyze your biases yet. At this point, it's still sort of a, a forced sense of stillness where you're actively pushing things down, right? And so that's the uh, second stage, but you can be so good at pushing things down, right? Uh, it can feel like stillness. Right? And so within that step, there is the pushing down, but of course, the second step is to bring them back up again, right? To bring back those uh, issues that you've had and begin the analysis, right? So you begin analysis and once you've dealt with that issue, right? You bring insight into this, you bring awareness into that view, then you have true stillness. So the second step has two, has like two different stages, right? There is the actively pushing it down through distraction, and there's also actually resolving those particular sort of psychological, emotional issues that you're having. Um, and so it's very much like therapy. Like you go and you talk about it, you resolve it through an analysis and insight. And so you have that second uh, sense of stillness, the unification of mind. So the third step is uh, similar to something you mentioned. So, so far, right, we've looking, we're looking at very, very sort of uh, less subtle displays of psychological movement, right? And so now we're moving into something that is a bit more subtle. Now we're looking at equanimity or detachment. So there's a sense, right, where no longer are you being attached to your own thoughts and your own issues, or there's a sense of embodiment, but you're slowly becoming attached and you're separating this notion of awareness to the, the notion of that awareness being part of something. So you might have the notion that the mind is still working, or the brain is still working, that the body is still working, that is an embodied experience, right? There's still a little bit of that, but there is the beginning of detachment. There is the beginning of, of separating the conception of what you think is a physical experience, right? What you think is a active experience with just awareness of just paying attention. So it's separating the pay attention to with the what you pay attention to, right? So in the beginning, you're still fully in it, right? You're still paying attention, but then there's like the higher order of paying attention and you're separating the that higher order away from that. So that's the third. And the fourth, right, then is the abandonment of bodily pleasure. So at the fourth end, you're purely, you're fully removed from the seeking of pleasure. So in the first three instances, it's still a meditative process with a sense of joy or happiness or pleasure as the goal, right? Detachment is great because you feel, you know, disassociated, right, from this, from this notion of paying attention. And so a lot of people who do some intense concentration mindfulness work who can bear immense pain 
can reach that stage. You, you know, people walking through flames or having some sort of self-mortification are able to do that from detachment. But still, there's an aversion to pain here. You're still not fully there, fully present with your feelings. The detachment is a sort of transitional step, but eventually you have to come back, right? You have to realize that that those feelings are happening that are happening to are not you. There's a sense of uh, moving away from aversion from pain and seeking a uh, seeking pleasure and going into a state of where of where you are at a state of where it's neither painful nor pleasurable, right? So there's a sense of purity in sensation, right? That you're no longer embodied. And people say that the transition from the third and fourth means that you stop breathing. Right, so one way to to note that is that once you're uh, disembodiedness, once you've reached that level of concentration, you have no visible traces of breath. So often uh, there are a lot of historical documentations of a lot of monks reaching this stage, and people think that they're dead, <laughs> and they <laughs> accidentally burn their bodies and they bury them, <laughs> uh, but they're actually just in a deep state of concentration. So those are the the formal uh, jhanas. Right, where there is still some sort of uh, formal experience happening. And then you reach the fifth stage where you reach the informal states, right? where you're no longer attached to any sort of experiential phenomena anymore, where no longer you're experiencing things as an experience. Right? You no longer have experiences in the sense where something is being experienced, right? You're moving to pure conceptual biases now. So, so far we're looking at, we've been looking at experiences. Now we're looking to, to states of meditation where you no longer have experiences, you just have raw concepts. So the fifth one is this notion of infinite space. So suddenly the world opens up to you as in, is an infinite space. There's no objects within them that it is, there's a feeling of expansiveness, right, of the world. And uh, they, you know, in the Hindu tradition, this this notion of expansiveness is is related to the level of uh, meditation and concentration that the Brahma gods feel, right? This notion of expansiveness that you know you get this notion that you're no longer impeded by physical constraints. Right? There's this notion of expansiveness and spatial uh, consciousness. And so this is actually not that dissimilar to Kant's analysis. He thinks that we are that we have empirical experiences, but we also have forms, right? as in we have uh, conceptual things baked into our ability to experience things. And without the formal notions of space and time, we actually don't have the ability to experience things empirically. We need things to be located in space and time in order to have experiences. So if we take the process of meditation as removing our biases. So we remove the objects first of experience. Now we're moving into raw conceptual, sort of the raw conceptual realm of space and time. So we remove space. Then in the sixth uh, notion, we abandon space and we move on to infinite consciousness. So by infinite consciousness, it's awareness, but it's also awareness of time. So there's this notion in, in consciousness where there is the consciousness of now, consciousness of the past, and consciousness of the future. Right? And has to have infinite consciousness to realize that your consciousness is presented throughout. There is consciousness throughout time. Right? And so spatio-temporal conceptions. Then the seventh is abandoning the conception of time. And now you have infinite nothingness. Not <laughs> emptiness, nothingness. 
right? So this is quite interesting. So what infinite nothingness, so neither space nor time, you just have raw nothingness, right? And in the eighth sense, you have neither perception or non-perception. So you've removed all the biases. The last thing that's left is the thing that it's still conceiving of nothingness. The conception of nothingness <laughs> is holding back from emptiness to conceive of nothingness, right? So you have, in, you have infinite nothingness. And at the ninth stage, right, is where there's the cessation of feelings and perceptions. You abandon sort of those aggregates of feelings and sensations. It's gone now. So what is it, the thing that you realize at the end, right, is that throughout this entire meditative process, on the background subconscious, there is still this notion of I, of me, right? So even the Brahma gods conceive of the world as I am a god. This is my world. I have created this. I am a creator. I perceive this. I sense this. Even if you remove everything else, there's this background notion of me. There's an I there, right? I, God, right? And so the final step that an Arahant makes to break from the cycle of life and death, to break from the cycle of delusion, is to realize that even the I can be removed from conception. So you have no feelings, no perception, and you take even a step back, and then the I is gone. Right? And so theoretically, meditation works in that sense. And all of this might seem a bit out there, but I think the main takeaway is that meditation, regardless of whether you think any of it is possible, the first few stages is psychologically applicable to us, right? Even without the high intense concentration stuff, we can apply this notion of paying attention, of being aware of our biases, being aware of our prejudices, conceptual or experiential or otherwise, and trying to realize that these things are reflections of our mind simulation, as you say, not reflections of what is actually the case. Right? And the more we do that, the closer and the more steps we are taking towards realizing things and having a better chance of realizing, realizing things as they actually are. So. Um, to relate it to your experiences of, of, of dream yoga, it's very much the same in Tibetan practices or a lot of visualizations, right? It's just any method people choose to conduct this sort of practice, any method you use to try and break down conceptions, right? And you might think, well, why didn't these things exist in the Buddhist time? Because the Buddhist time life was a lot simpler. There were less biases, less conceptions, less things that were part of our imagination that we were aware about. And as time moved on, we've had to come up with new techniques to remove new biases, to remove new conceptions that people didn't have. We have our imagination is so fruitful now, and we're so attached to our imaginations. So sometimes we need a little bit of reminder that these things are not, not you know, these things are valuable. It's good to imagine. The only mistake is that in attaching yourself to imagination and thinking that they're genuinely real. And so in some sutras, the Buddha describes it's almost like children building sandcastles, right? Or, you know, uh, there's an image in the Tibetan Wheel of Life in the notion of fabrications where a, a, a craftsman builds a pot, right? And think of how ridiculous it would be if the child says to you, no, that sandcastle's me, right? right? Or a, a craftsman saying to you, no, that, this pot is me. And you must take this pot seriously. And if you do anything to this pot, if you're angry at this pot, I will be personally offended, right? And so we fabricate, right? In, you know, the pot itself is not 
the guilty party. It is the attachment to this notion that this toy must be taken seriously, that this thing that you call you must be taken seriously is what causes our suffering. And then, of course, when the big wave comes, right, and washes away the sandcastle, the children cry. But the adult who is aware of the processes of life, of aware of the sandcastle's impermanence, does not cry. He is capable of going to the beach, building a sandcastle, and perfectly happy with the experience of building a sandcastle, and also perfectly happy that the waves come and take the sandcastle away. The adult never even thinks about, you know, crying over it. They just think, yep, I've built something nice, and it's a temporary thing, and it will go away. But a child, right, who is unaware of this, who doesn't pay attention to this notion, is fooled by their own attachments and does cry over the loss of the sandcastle, right? So there, that's the general idea. There's a lot, there's a lot of theory there, and I suspect that <laughs> I went through it very, very quickly, and you know, you can write a whole book on this. Um, so I'm going to throw it back to you, and I wonder if there's any parts of that description that might you find relatable to your own experiences. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a whole mm. lot. I love in Buddhism how they've kind of ordered all these things and the progressions. Yeah. yeah. It's so useful and fascinating. Yeah, there was one thing that was really jumping out is that th that's another experience that was happening. I think mm. in Buddhism it's called uh, Buddha nature and stuff. But I've mm. I've been realizing, you know, when you, when you read about these things and you start getting into it, it sounds so far out. But once you start practicing and getting little glimpses like I had, you realize how mundane they actually are. And the mm. only thing that's really lacking is recognition, mm. right? All, every day we go through a circadian rhythm of brain states that mm. pass through all of these things. But like you said, it's a process of removing and it takes a training and stabilizing your awareness to mm. be able to place that recognition on these states that seem mystical, but they're not. They're mm. happening to you every day, all day long. Um, you just, they're just not being recognized. And so, yeah, yeah and, and even hearing that latter, like, I don't even know if I wanna do all that. That just sounds wild. Like, I, I went through a period that maybe started five years ago where I was, I would call it just individuating. It was like a complete deconstruction of kind of like concepts I've inherited from culture and things like that. And uh, that's not that's not a fun time. It's mm -hmm. uh, it was nihilism. So I had mm -hmm. to annihilate all these things in order to become individuated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I when I had that dream and stuff and I realized I saw like this potential I became a bit scared because I realized if I wanted to really actualize that, then it would be another wave of nihilism. Like, realizing that you're a simulator turns everything meaningless again. And I just got to a spot where I'm feeling pretty good, that equilibrium, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling pretty good? I don't yeah. want <laughs> But, yeah. yes, I'm... A little scared about going further, but I know it's all just about perspective, right? Mm. I got mentally ill in that first wave, but now I'm better and I'm a lot freer, mm. right? But this this is hard. This is hard stuff. Yeah, 
interestingly enough, right, the Buddha recognized that there are two wrong views that are not Buddhist views, right? There's the view of nihilism and there's the view of eternalism. And so the Buddha says, well, the, the Buddhist view is somewhere in the middle. And Nagarjuna works on this. So he's the founder of the notion of the middle view uh, in his Madhyamaka. And so the middle view is actually recognizing, right, that the phenomena is emptiness, right, that is, is not as we understand it. So there is this notion of there's three views. There's the view that it's fake. It's a simulation. That phenomena as we experience does not reflect reality. That's the first view. Then there is the notion, right? There's the conventional feel where we take these things seriously, right? And so those are the two side views, if you'd like, right? There is the uh, emptiness view where everything is a simulation and there is also the, the conventional feel where we take the, all of this seriously and I'll take this as real. And the middle view is the view that actually it's both. Mm -hmm. Because if you experience it, it's real to you, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that these things don't exist because they do exist. They expect, it exists as experiences to you, right? You can't mm -hmm. say that people plugged in the matrix are not having a life. They are. As mm -hmm. long as they're experiencing, it's real, right? Mm -hmm. But, right, there's a little bit of wriggle room in that the, the, the experiences they're having are ultimately caused by, right, things that they're not aware of, right? Mm -hmm. That they're caused by and their root conditions are in the emptiness, Right, they're not mm -hmm. the cause is not one single self, it's not a one single identity, it is just a bunch of conditions. Mm -hmm. And so the middle view is to say that, right? On they're both sort of correct, but not entirely correct. So how does that say of nihilism? Because on one hand you recognize, for instance, if you're just looking at your own experiences, you're recognizing, well, I'm still suffering now, and there, there's something to be done about it. So there is joy to be had, there's peace to be had, there's happiness to be had, right? There's liberation to be had. On the, so that's the Arahant's path. So their antidote to nihilism and suicide is to realize that suicide is not the end, right? Is to realize that it just continues. If you fester, <laughs> if you allow this notion of identity, of this notion of self-clinging to continue, it will just come back and it will continue in other ways. Maybe not through, you know, this what you call self dies, but it continues, it carries on, right? For some people, it's quite literal in terms of having children and others is your influence on other people's minds and your thoughts and so on, right? You know, if people have very, very egoistic views and they are very, very charismatic, other people will, you know, follow suit. And so there's continuance in that sense. But if you take the Mahayana, uh, you know, Mahayana Bodhisattva view, you also realize that, that there's, the suffering is very real to lots of people in the world as well. And the fact that you can do something about it is also an antidote to nihilism. So loving kindness and compassion. And I'm, I'm reminded of this sort of quote by Mr. Rogers. As a child, he watched 9-11 happen on the news on, t on television. He was a quite an empathetic, sensitive child, so he was very upset. And his mother would say to him, you know, yes, on one hand, yes, recognize that there is a lot of suffering and it's, there's something terrible that has happened, but also recognize the full picture. The full picture is that there is suffering and that there's helpers in the world. And the helpers are trying really hard to make life less terrible. There's less suffering in the world. And so, of course, on one hand, his mother's advice is telling him to have a, full, a fuller scope, right? Nihilism, you know, is taking one half of the story and not realizing that there's also the other half, but also, right recommending to mr rogers and to the rest of us that we might consider being one of those helpers 
right? So it links back to something you've said before, that having a view that this is all a simulation doesn't stop us from helping people within this context. The only mistake is that in the process of helping, you fall into the trap of taking that context seriously. So let's say I'm, you know, I'm playing Monopoly and I'm trying to help someone not suffer that much playing Monopoly, not get so angry and worked up over a game, right? I can do that by recognizing that they're really attached to the game and speaking their language and playing the game as if I was attached to it, but also recognizing that it is a game, right? Things only go bad for me is that when I get sucked in myself and I start not realizing that it's a game anymore, right? So a magician is great. He can entertain the masses. They can entertain the masses by performing tricks, right? And at the same time, know how the trick is done. Knowing how the trick is done doesn't take away the magic, right? Penn and Teller shows us that actually knowing how the trick is done, there's another level of fascination and magic within that. Watching them tell you how the trick is done allows you to marvel at the artistry of how it is performed, right? So just because you're looking behind doesn't mean you can't enjoy magic anymore, but a lot of people think that. But of course, the mistake that magicians make is that it goes wrong when they actually believe that there is real magic. They actually believe that they're doing something extraordinary when, they're, when it's just skill and art. Right? That's when things go wrong, right? And so this similar rule for con artists and tricksters and mentalists, right? They go wrong when they start believing in their own bullshit. When they start believing in their own tricks, that's when you go wrong. But otherwise, if you're fully aware that this is just a trick, you can use that to your advantage, right? You can use that to help others, to use it as a source of inspiration, use it as a source of therapy, mm -hmm. right? And so that's perfectly fine. And so that's you know, the difference between seeing these things, as, you know, seeing the sandcastle as like a part of you and it's very, very important and it's attached to you and you can't get rid of, and seeing a sandcastle as a useful tool, right? As an art, right? To entertain, to help, uh, to support others. And so, yes, I can see like the pull to eyes and there's a genuine fear there that, you know, if I realize this is the matrix and I realize this is all, just my experience of things does that mean i will fall into an empty less empty you know empty pit of despair not if you rem if you remind yourself that people's feelings and experiences of suffering and pain and pleasure and joy those are real to them mm -hmm. right and so it's a you know that aspect gives you a role to play to help to be in service right mm -hmm. Monopoly is a game that can be enjoyed without taking it seriously. In fact, you'll probably enjoy it more. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that, that you'll probably enjoy the cycles of life and death more if you learn to see it simply as a game, right? The yeah. Hindus have this idea, I've mentioned it before, that you know these things are a creation and the gods have played it into existence. Right? And you've quite rightly pointed out that for a lot of people that the suffering is real. That is true, right? But it's also important to note that the cause of suffering is to take this game too seriously, right? When you take these man-made conceptions too seriously, people will fight over them, mm -hmm. right? And they forget that borders don't exist objectively, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They forget that these plots of land are man-assigned, right? And we can come to the table, we can negotiate, we can talk. If we remind ourselves that what matters is whether we are suffering or not, whether we can achieve peace and happiness and joy or not, 
but some people decide that no this game is too serious that the welfare and peace and happiness and lives of people are not as important as this game that i'm playing right the relationship with my nephew is not as important as beating him in monopoly right? that's when things goes wrong right <laughs> when you have you know tension in relationships and mm-hmm. so i think yeah there's there's an element um that you know there's the buddha always says that anybody who wants to do meditation should keep in mind right loving kindness right he talks about the the four immeasurables loving kindness compassion right uh sympathetic joy and equanimity Mm -hmm. loving kindness is wishing your you know others and yourself most primarily happiness and security and joy right you need that as a fundamental basis otherwise it's very easy to meditate yourself into a depression (laughs) i have to remind yourself why you're doing it you're doing it for your own sake of joy your own sense of security you're doing it for other people's happiness other people's sense of security and so the whole loving kindness is dedicated to that may Mm -hmm. others be happy may others be secure Compassion is the same, right? Recognizing other people's suffering, that their suffering is real to them and you can do something. May they be alleviated from suffering. May, be, may they be alleviated from desire, hatred, and delusion. Sympathetic joy is to take joy in other people's joy, right? When they find peace, right? when they find happiness, when they find, you know, tranquility, to also not feel jealous of that, not feel like, oh my God, I can, you know, you know I, I can't stand the success of others, right? But to feel sympathetic joy, to feel joy that other people are also succeeding in whatever you know, capacity. Equanimity is, is, is the hardest, to you know, see people as fundamental moral equals. Right? <laughs> There's no collective group of people that, you know, are more important no 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 like you know people are like no i only wish happiness and 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 wish suffering away from like republicans or democrats only for this <laughs> particular group of people right so equanimity is about fundamental moral worth it doesn't matter what box you put people in you don't prioritize you don't say that these people are more deserving of happiness over others because that's very mm. you know easily leads to being willing to sacrifice to build the happiness of a particular group on the suffering of another group. That's quite a dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think keeping those four things in mind will help, you know, you in your adventures from spiraling into like a deep direction. <laughs> Hopefully. You know, I mean, the... I, I manage to escape insanity every yeah. time. So, <laughs> But uh, no, I, I, I don't think that bodhicitta is important. I know. Mm. I know very, very well. Yeah. And I want to make sure that first bodhicitta we talked about, the relative type, mm. solves so many problems. Yeah. I know. I know for a fact that that's the case. Maybe you don't want to find that out. Maybe you'll mm. just believe me. I promise mm. you. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you yeah. it's important. No, I've been I've been really feeling that, um, especially doing meditated meditations in theta, especially very low theta. Now it, it things kind of start unraveling. Like I no longer, my sense of realism isn't the same anymore. Um, mm. My daily life, to me, and I can't say this to normal people because I sound absolutely insane, <laughs> is just as real as an imagining or a dream. It's just as real. And 
And I started wondering, like, okay, what is the case then? Um, yeah, and I came to the conclusion you did that there is, you know, at the beginning I said, I'm sure that I am, but you're like, you're not even sure about the I. I agree with that. <laughs> so I'm just sure there's an amness, yeah. right? At this ground awareness, and that it's affected, right? That's what's real, right? And you can see that when you play a video game. I have very real emotions in a video game, you know? Yeah. I get very angry and may yell at stuff. <laughs> that's yeah. that's just as real as anything else. And I think with, like, uh, VR video games, that's when people start, get to experience kind of like what I've been experiencing in Theta States, right? If you jump into VR, and it's just like a lucid dream. The whole time you're like, this isn't real, it's just a game. This isn't real, it's just a game right in a VR there's that constant check and it's when you believe it's real like you said mm -hmm. that suddenly you become scared of tight rope walking above the mm -hmm. skyscrapers in a VR and people jump and scream and everything yeah right and maybe that's the cause of suffering that this absolute form points out is like it's you believe this thing's real you know mm -hmm. that's a lot hopefully we yeah. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> abstract idea yeah, we're definitely not saying something to the effect of this is all just a matrix, right? We're saying that your experiences are just that, they're experiences, right? Yeah. And so it's not meant like people, you know, hear this and think, oh, you know, you know, this wacky idea that we're all abducted by aliens to, you know, or robots to become bad. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that our experiences are an experience produced by the brain, given that this, you know, the, the stimulus and the signals that it has to uh -huh. give us some form, its best guess right. at how to go about life, right? And it's important to be aware that, okay, if that's the case, there's no need to, to be too attached that this is definitely the case, right? This is definitely yeah. true. This is definitely, you know, my point of view is absolutely the, the one to have, right? This is definitely the case this is the correct political ideology right because things can change yeah. and change is a good thing right people often hear oh impermanence what a terrifyingly depressing thing but actually the buddha has often said that impermanence and the fact that things can change should be a good thing it means that you can be better you can have better experiences than you have now the most horrifying thing is that if you were just stuck in one experience <laughs> and you're not allowed to change yeah yeah, there is a consensus reality, right? There is a stream of information that we're all getting that we can agree on, right? Mm. And the things that we can agree on the most become the most real things, right? Mm. The more yeah. unique an experience is, the less real it is. Mm. But it's all the same. It's just a stream. But the interesting thing I got from this also is that you're also creating a stream of reality for yourself. Mm at the yep. same time as receiving it mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know maybe that's maybe that's it for today <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a good place to end it yeah we're simultaneously experiencing and we are creating experiences yeah it's 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 a lot of nuance but yeah i think uh next i'd really like to talk about mindfulness and for me, mindfulness is equal to relaxation, which kind of mm -hmm. went into your first step. So I think we'll do that next. Thank you, Dylan, for all your all your wisdom. And uh, thank you to everyone who listened today. And remember to be critically creative. <laughs>